Hello, and welcome to the first of two very special ICAW Insights podcasts coming to you from COP28 in Dubai. I'm Mark Rowland, and I'll be joined on both episodes by Sarah Ray, ICAW's Climate Change Manager. Later, we'll be joined by Shazri Kwamba-Hill, Director of Network Strategy and Insight for Resilience First. So far at COP, we've seen the historic agreement for a loss and damage fund for nations most adversely affected by climate change, something that's been more than 30 years in the making. The International Sustainability Standards Board also announced that around 400 member organizations, representing over 10,000 companies and investors, have signed up to its climate-related reporting across the globe. We've also seen more than 110 nations commit to tripling renewable energy capacity by 2030, and $3 billion pledged by the US for a green climate fund dedicated to supporting climate action in developing countries. Let's start with what's happened so far. Sarah Ray is with me. The scale is something else, isn't it? Yeah, this year's COP is on a scale like no other. We've seen over 70,000 people descending on Dubai to take part in negotiations, hold important talks and demonstrations. And just being in and around Expo, the the size of the venue is just unmatched. So it's a huge, a huge COP this year. So what's ICW trying to achieve at COP this year? So ICW are here to participate, to learn, but also to bring together key uh, stakeholders and members of the profession, the the broader finance profession, uh, to hold key roundtables and workshops, all focused around just transition planning and embedding nature into business decision making. One of those uh, sessions we we already held on on Monday. Um, we held a high-level roundtable with A4S focused on how we accelerate action on transition plans. And what came out of that discussion was really clear that there has been little action so far. So we need to move from talking and making commitments to actually doing things now. We've seen some significant announcements so far, such as the loss and damage fund. So what's the significance of that and what, what further progress needs to happen? That is significant in two ways. Uh, in previous COPs, we've never had such a major agreement made on day one. So that is a, a major uh, progress and achievement in itself. However, of course, we do still need to see that ratified in the final text. But we've had nations already committing funding. So the UAE started with $100 million, followed swiftly by Germany matching that, and the UK has committed $75 million to that fund. But of course, more more needs to be done. There's still more funding to be committed um, and further action on, on broader issues, such as around the, the net zero transition and, and renewables and whatnot. So a significant milestone in the UK was the release of the Transition Plan Task Force Framework. So could you tell us a bit about what's in there and, and why that matters to members? Yes, so the... TPT framework was finalised in October and just for a bit of background, the TPT was brought together at COP26 and in such a short space of time, they have developed this whole new framework to be the gold standard of transition plans. What that includes is looking at, of course, how we transition to net zero, but looks at bringing people, society along and including nature in that transition. What's really significant about the TPT framework is that it also takes a whole economy approach to transition planning. So 
not just looking at the organization's own internal transition, but looking at the external community in which they work in, looking at your industry, and really taking a more holistic view um, to transition planning. Nick Robbins, Professor in Practice for Sustainable Finance at the London School of Economics and Political Science, delivered a presentation to the First Ministerial at COP on transition planning. He spoke to me about the role of policy, business and finance in facilitating and accelerating a just transition. So the just transition is part of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. The definition that's given by the International Labour Organization is to maximise the socio-economic opportunities of transition in terms of decent jobs, particularly for men and women, but also to manage the risks that the transition could place in terms of jobs, uh, but also communities. And so essentially you're saying bring everybody along in terms of particularly jobs, communities, social justice, but also leave no one behind. And a crucial part of the just transition is not just those outcomes, but also how it is done. It's a process, so it's a process of social dialogue uh, between businesses, uh, workforce, but also wider stakeholder engagement, so that people don't feel that the transition is sort of happening to them, but they're at the table and, uh, and involved in the process. Obviously, that's been a big buzz phrase for, for this year. Um, how is just transition reflected in policy at the moment in you know, kind of major economies? This year at COP, just transition is actually becoming one of the real hinge factors. And just maybe looking a little bit at the, the global agenda, big things at COP are about the energy transition, so focusing on the phase-out of fossil fuels, and then the tripling of renewables, the doubling of energy efficiency. And clearly, just transition is uh, relevant for both of those. So if you're thinking about phasing out fossil fuels, how do you assess the impacts on workers' communities, how do you reinvest in skills, uh, etc., and revitalize regions? that are affected. So that's that there. And then obviously, if you're tripling renewables, thinking about retrofitting every home in the UK, for example, where are the skills and the workforce going to come from that? How do you involve communities? And also, particularly on the, the housing side, actually, how do you involve households and so on? So that's at the big agenda here at COP. So how it's landing globally, it suggests that about a third of countries have incorporated just transition into their national climate plans, which are called the NDCs. So some of those, um, I think uh, European Union is, is well advanced, has a just transition mechanism. South Africa, probably the f- sort of ahead in terms of policy thinking. There are in fact four sort of global partnerships between developed and developing countries, South Africa, Indonesia, Vietnam, uh, Senegal. So it's sort of getting on the agenda. We're seeing some leadership. The big thing here is how do we get that really embedded throughout the world? In the UK, the Scottish government is particularly active. Uh, They have a Just Transition Commission, which I'm involved in, which is trying to bring together sort of stakeholders. And then sort of, I suppose, broader UK, there have been efforts around uh, a sort of green jobs task force, really thinking about how uh, we build the workforce for a net zero future in terms of the sort of skills that people need in the right place at the right time, but also ensure that these have these have fair work conditions um, so that actually these jobs are attractive for women and for men. It's quite a new phrase for, for a lot of people, certainly in the, in the business world. How should they be engaging with the idea of a just transition, the conversation at the moment? You're, you're quite right. So the phrase just transition is maybe relatively new. It comes out of the trade union movement. But perhaps there's so two entry points, which I think most businesses will, will understand. First is the sustainable development goals. So the ILO, the International Labour Organization, came out with its global just transition guidelines the same month 
as the Sustainable Development Goals came out. So if you think of the Just Transition as a bridge, it's about transition, making it just. So it's a bridge between different SDGs, the SDG 13 on climate, the SDG 8 on decent work, for example. And then if you use the language of ESG, clearly it's saying you have a sort of environmental transformation, climate, this also applies to nature. Let's make sure there's a bridge to the social dimension in terms of workforce standards, diversity, community relations, and so on. And it's actually trying, I think it's a very real live issue of trying to break down those silos between the E and the S of ESG. So those are maybe two entry points. So you'll find that actually, hopefully there's an aha factor that this is maybe a new phrase, but it actually is about businesses, financiers, governments being very intentional about taking the social dimension, workforce, community, consumer dimension very seriously in terms of climate action. Thinking about the finance sector specifically, what, what role does sort of finance and accounting play in sort of facilitating and accelerating the just transition? Well, I think that question is really good because, in a sense, the finance is a service function and it needs to be, in a sense, the servant of the transition uh, in the real economy. At the LSE, we brought together a sort of loose coalition of groups, business, finance, uh, investors, banks, trade unions, regional bodies, which we call FAHITA, the Finance and Just Transition Alliance. And that's been really trying to take this sort of high-level imperative and turn it into things that investors can do and banks can do. So investors, what can they do? They need to develop their own transition plans. They need to make sure just transition is part of the ambition of that. They have shareholder engagement plans, part of the expectations they have of the companies they invest in, obviously net zero targets, capex and everything, but also how they're managing the social dimension. And also uh, investors, well, let's say, would have policy dialogue, which as investors, investors can also ensure the governments have the policies we need for just transition, both in terms of responding to policy consultation and so on but also as owners of sovereign bonds there is a bit more skin in the game to say we'd like to hold your sovereign bonds we want them to be aligned with net zero but also we want to see these underlying policies which are going to make uh, policy go quicker on banks very similar things but perhaps let's look at the uh, housing market particularly in the uk one of the stickier areas where we haven't made as much progress in terms of retrofitting and changing heating systems. There, I think the issue would be for banks, again, to incorporate uh, social dimension into their uh, mortgage housing finance areas, thinking about uh, people who may be in houses uh, which have value but don't actually have the access to affordable capital to upgrade, to renovate, and so on. It's so quite a major role then. As I say, I think, I mean, the first role really is for governments to put in place the policy frameworks. I think business and their sort of uh, so stakeholders, uh, trade unions, workers within the company, uh, communities outside. And finance can actually have a supporting role. Um, but also, I think what is interesting is that finance can be quite catalytic. We've seen actually shareholders putting questions on net zero and just transition at shareholder meetings can catalyze companies to actually start putting in place just transition plans. So I think that it can be catalytic. And then I think on uh, one project we've just launched, actually, the LSE with the Climate Bonds Initiative, is to say we've got this very exciting green, social, sustainable, sustainability-linked bond market. How do we actually bring this just transition dimension into that? So again, there could be particular issuances from a corporate, from a country, a sovereign like the UK, and from other bodies, which could be driving the sort of green agenda, net zero resilience, but also making sure that these considerations about risks and opportunities for workers and communities are incorporated. So I think that's the area where actually 
then you really get people saying, now I understand. It actually is not just sort of in planet COP, but it can be put into my portfolio and to the way I actually allocate capital. How's COP been for you so far? What are you getting out of it? What are you hoping to get out of it further? I mean, it's really interesting. There have been some really positive moves. The agreement of the Loss and Damage Fund, which is to essentially provide support for countries, particularly developing countries, who are already suffering from the harm caused by companies. That was agreed in the early days. Very good. Uh, lots of momentum around tripling renewables, doubling energy efficiency. Great uh, there. Uh, I think the, the, the big sticking point is this question of phasing out fossil fuels. Uh, obviously, many countries are dependent on that, not least the UAA, UEA, which is the host. Uh, and I think it's important to see that this is a, a transition, uh, but we really need to be calling time on the fossil fuel age and planning for that transition. So we've still got a few days to go. Uh, the negotiators are really focused on the text, but the big thing is that this is the moment where we take stock, a so-called uh, global stock take. How far we've done since Paris, not good enough. The real message from COP is can governments agree that sort of signal? So when governments, business, civil society go back to their various countries, on the Monday after COP, they've got a clear work program of what they're going to do in 2024 and beyond. In the UK, the Transition Plan Task Force has released a framework to help ease the way for organisations to engage with the transition and factor into their own plans for net zero. I managed to have a quick chat at the conference with Nina Pemblet, their Sector Guidance League, who believes that the role of finance and accountants will become more and more crucial to transition planning. Historically, there has been a tendency for sort of ESG and climate to sit within purely the remit of the Chief Sustainability Officer and Sustainability Teams. What we are now seeing and what's really brought out throughout the TP Disclosure Framework is actually this is a big strategic change resulting in disclosure at the end. Your finance department absolutely should be involved in your transition plan. They should be it's sort of speaking with you to understand your plans, how it fits into the company's strategy, what that's going to do to the company, what's the sort of financial planning element of this. And then you would assume the finance function will then be involved in the disclosures that come at the end of that. But it really isn't they step in at the last moment and help with the disclosures and the reporting. It really is a whole company approach to thinking about the strategy and how you're weaving the transition within that. There are a number of transition plan themed events happening this year. And if we compare that to even last year at COP27, where there are only a select number and actually quite a lot of the TPT were involved in anyway. This year, there are almost too many events for us to appear at and it's brilliant to see just kind of the momentum behind transition plans, not only within the UK where we have the TPT, but also internationally um, and how much people are engaging with our work, interested in our work and being stopped all sorts of places by people sort of recognising us from popping up at various things and asking about it. And that isn't just confined within the UK. So really excited for COP, really excited to meet all sorts of people think about transition plans in all sorts of different ways, how to prepare them, how to use them. Um, it's just really, really exciting to see the growth compared to COP27. Resilience First has been advocating for the business case for engaging in the transition to net zero. I'm joined by Shazri Gwamba-Hill, Director of Network Strategy and Impact for Resilience First. So tell me a little bit about Resilience First. What do you do? So Resilience First is a global business-led network of over 600 organizations. And we very much focus on providing a platform uh, where the business community can come together and really innovate and develop solutions that advance resilience in all aspects, climate being such a major risk to business community at the moment and and will look increasingly so plays a big part in a lot of the work that we do 
So what are you trying to achieve at COP28 this week? So the main focus for us, not just at this COP, but for several COPs really, has been to push the adaptation and resilience agenda to the same level of attention and focus that the mitigation uh, conversation currently gets. And we think this is really important because, because as we know, there are a lot of climate impacts that are already baked into the system. It's super important that we continue to focus our mitigation efforts, but recognizing that there are a lot of compounding risks already in the system, we need to make sure that businesses and the global community is prepared to tackle those as they come, even as we're reducing our climate impacts. How does the just transition support what you're trying to do for business? So I think when it comes to adaptation and resilience, the just transition provides a fantastic framing that helps to center people at the heart of all of our activity. So businesses are usually approaching adaptation and resilience in terms of how do we make sure that businesses can survive and thrive climate events, right? But what the just transition does is give us a people-focused narrative that forces businesses to take a whole systems approach to thinking about their adaptation activity. Also, we're trying to make the business case for, for why people should be engaging with this. So why should businesses be engaging with the conversation around just transition? I think businesses are recognizing more and more that their resilience really depends on the resilience of the system as a whole. So there's a really famous example of a factory that has been made super resilient. So, you know, it can have power and it can function throughout a massive storm. But what good is that factory if the people who work there can't get to it because the roads are flooded, right? So when we're talking about building resilience, we need to look at the entire ecosystem within which the private sector, within which businesses operate. And that, therefore, the just transition narrative around focusing people, making sure that we are bringing people along on this journey that no one is left behind, provides a really good lens for that. What is Resilience First currently doing to drive activity in this area? We've been working on a new initiative, which we're calling the Climate Resilience Pathways work. So we've been focused a lot this year on engaging key stakeholders, mostly businesses, but also stakeholders across the spectrum. So that's policymakers, academics, NGOs, multilateral finance institutions. Um, And what we're really doing is putting together a core community of practice. So far this year, we've engaged 40 organizations in a series of six in-person and uh, virtual conversations that's really looking to develop a framework for how businesses can become more resilient. So how does that link in with the Just Transition? What we're trying to really do through this work is establish a new leadership role for businesses in spearheading the just and equitable transition to a lower carbon global economy. And in this way, the Just Transition provides, a, as I said, a really good guiding light for us to centre this work on. We've got a, a few more days left in COP28. What are you looking forward to seeing? What are you What are you doing uh, for the rest of the week? So, yeah, so we've, we're off to a good start. Uh, we've had some amazing conversations. It's a fantastic opportunity for kind of the leaders and thinkers to get together 
and we've already seen, I think, for the first time, the adaptation and resilience agenda being discussed at the highest levels. As I said, that was one of our big goals. We've got a couple more meetings uh, that we're planning to have, and we're really looking to engage more businesses, make sure this is, you know, one of the key priorities for the private sector as we head into the new year. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. That's all for this episode. We'll be back at COP next episode, where we'll be looking at the business case for nature. More information on the topics we've discussed here can be found in the show notes and through Making COP Count, the content series on ICAW's website. Thanks for being with us today. And if you're finding these podcasts useful, please do subscribe to the series on your app and never miss an episode.